Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. and welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather and today I'm joined by a wonderful woman from the border, basically town of Moama, um, between uh, Victoria and New South Wales, Vera Lee. Welcome, Vera. Thank you so much, Maddie. It's, it's lovely to be on here and hopefully I can bring some value to your audience today. And we are going to be talking about some pretty juicy, difficult, tricky, traumatic stuff but I think it's important to be doing so. Absolutely. And we just had a a quick chat before um, we started the conversation as well. So we will probably give just an extra trigger warning that this discussion may get to be a bit graphic, but I think it's important to give each survivor the chance to tell their story in their own words. Um, And and that's what we're going to do today. But before we get into that, do you mind telling um, the listeners a little bit about yourself? who you are, where you're from, what what you like to get up to in your spare time. Yes, I am an avid lawn bowler. <laughs> I absolutely adore lawn bowls. And I started playing that sport because I couldn't play tennis anymore. Long story was that I used to play tennis around Australia. I was an elite athlete and I loved the sport. And I got very, very unwell in my later life and was unable to participate in it anymore. And uh, lawn bowls was my next best thing. And I absolutely adore it. I think I almost like it more than tennis, which is like crazy for me to say. So I've always been a sports person in my life. And I've always been a calm personality too. I'm one of those people that thinks about things. I observe things. I'm a very good observer. And earlier this year, I put that into place, actually last year, already in 2021, so last year, when I started my own podcast and the Why Me Movement, which is all about helping other people and really learning to see opportunities within adversities, of which I've had many, many years practice. Absolutely. And I think I did exactly the same thing when I started Reclaim Me. It was all of this time that I had available to me. I think that I had in the past, but I was putting it into other things. And I found this time valuable in the sense that I wasn't trying to please anybody else. This was something that was internally driving and motivating me that I had now had the time to do. Um, mm. But as well with lawn bowls, it just makes me smile so much. It it brings so much joy to me because my nan um, and my family are big lawn bowlers and my nan is no longer with us. Um, but she was queen lady bowler, like down at the um, at the bowling green all of the time. We take her there from the um, from from her home, <laughs> and yeah. she was on like a walking frame in her later years. And she would just dot around, and she was quite slow. You know, I'd help her get on and off the toilet and things like that. But yeah. if when she was near that bowling green, the community mm-hmm. around her, it was like she didn't even need the frame anymore. She was sprinting down the things. She was just <laughs> the most 
So I think, yeah, it means a lot to me and my family as well, just that sport. And you know what's lovely about it is the team sense of what it is and how camaraderie it kind of is to get together as that team. So completely understand why you love it so much because I feel tennis could be much more of an individualized sport. Yeah. Yeah, tennis could definitely be. I mean, I I played singles and I played doubles as well, but you never had more than two people on your team. You know, it was you or it was you and your partner and that was it. And that was one of the things I really loved about lawn bowls is that during the game, you get to stand there, have a bit of a chat, you know, make a few jokes, whatever it is, but you're socialising at the same time. And at crossover, you're socialising at the same time. So there's essentially eight, up to eight of you on the green at the same time on that one ring. And then that's not even considering the people next to you, you know. So, and then afterwards, one of the things that really struck me the most, everybody goes in to share a drink, whether it be water or whatever people's favourite drink is, they go in to share a drink at the end of every game. And you could have just met these people for the first time and yet that was what you did. And I loved that because it gave you the opportunity for just connection with people, which is so, so important. I love it so much. It just warms my heart. I'm so glad that you are doing that. Sadly, not at the moment because we're in lockdown, but that that's been a hobby of yours um, that you've found in recent times because, yeah, I think once we lose, I, you know, former elite athlete as well myself, once you lose the ability to do that sport, it is so isolating and you feel so alone because you don't know what to do with yourself. And I've been trying myself to find purpose in my life in a lot of ways, but in sports as well, because I miss being competitive and that's a big driver for me. So I've been trying different things. Um, I'm going to try Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is next on my list as well. Awesome. Um, So I think I'm going to try a few (laughs) different things and I just bought a skateboard. (laughs) (laughs) as a new as a new hobby so I think no I love it and I encourage people so much to go out there and try new things like you know I think it's a good sense of freedom in the sense that you can try new things and actually find things that you're good at and that you enjoy um as well yeah yeah it so is and for me I mean growing up my whole family played tennis you know my my dad actually revolutionized the way that tennis equipment was sold by providing the service that used to only be reserved for professional touring players for everybody at grassroots because he understood the importance of helping people get to that level in the first place. And so I was brought up on a tennis court essentially, you know. It, It had been generations of families playing it. And so to have that taken away from me essentially, it really was devastating. And what I discovered was it wasn't really the tennis per se. It was all of those brilliant things that go along with playing a sport. It was being able to have a space to be competitive with myself, really, to be able to get out there and train, training, having a a purpose, having a focus for every session, getting to that point where I just felt the bowl rolling out of my hand or I, I now actually use what's called a bowler's arm. So feeling you know, getting into the zone, that's actually my main goal rather than anything else to do with sports. So, and then on top of it, of course, you have all the connection and the social side and all of that. So there is just so many wonderful things that really do go across to every other aspect of our life. I know being a sports person helped me be a better business person, helped me be a better mum. It's helped me be a better friend to people. Um, So yeah, just so many wonderful things. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I'm the biggest advocate for sports. Um, and it's weird. I, I would love to do a group, a team sport. I've never done one, so I don't know what that's going to feel like, but it's interesting. I was a, an elite gymnast and then a pole vaulter, which are both incredibly individual sports. Um, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> even as a gymnast, you can compete as a team for a team event, but each apparatus is still an individual you know, you don't, you're not working with somebody, your scores just add up together. So it's a yeah. unique experience, but anyway, um, yeah. I love that we've, we've got that in common in our lives. I think it means a lot. Um, but yeah. moving on from that, you, um, you do have a story and I really want to get into your podcast as well a little bit later on so that you can share with us a bit of the wonderful work you're doing with that. But where, where were you in your life when, when your story, um, when your story started with this? Yeah, I was in my early 20s 
And so I had been very successful in my sport. I'd been very successful in school and at university. And I'd gone into my first teaching job and I was teaching and coordinating at a private girls' school. And lots of things had been changing in my life. I'd moved out of home for the first time. And there was a situation. Actually, there were a number of situations that happened at that particular workplace. And unfortunately, I had some situations that caused me to need to leave that place. It was very, very toxic. And there were a whole heap of things going on in the background that I won't mention, except to say that I was publicly defamed and had the evidence and everything. But there was nothing that could be done about it at that time. And so I felt like the place that I just moved to to start my new life, I didn't feel like I could even show my face around the place because I was a new person and everybody was talking about me for things that were clearly untrue, but it didn't seem to matter. So I actually became clinically depressed. And at 23 years of age, I didn't know what depression was. I didn't even recognize it myself to then be told that I was clinically depressed. I couldn't work anymore at that point in time. And I didn't know what to do because I just moved out of home and I'm like, what do I do with my life? So I was in a very vulnerable state. Mentally, I was very confused and I didn't really know what I was going to do because I'd spent so much of my life training up for this particular career. And I also discovered that for me, teaching wasn't actually giving me back what I thought it would. It really wasn't for me. So I decided to move away, a long way away, (laughs) and I moved a couple of states away and I went to Queensland. And in Queensland, I had a wonderful time for a couple of months and was living the life. I was working on the islands in gorgeous weather and I was connecting with all these beautiful people that would come onto the islands as guests and I was an activities coordinator. So, you know, all the activities happened around me and it was fantastic and I was changing people's lives by simply giving them a fabulous time, teaching them about the island, teaching them that, you know, in life there is so much to be grateful for. And then I met my husband on one of those islands. And that's when everything turned to shit, (laughs) quite frankly, and very quickly. So I was around sort of 23, 24 And I was a virgin at that particular point in my life. I'd actually never really been interested in boys on that level before. And this man came in and basically was very romantic and I was in a vulnerable state. I was separated by thousands of kilometres to all the people that I knew and loved. And I felt like I needed support emotionally and he appeared to be someone that was going to provide that for me. And when I look back at it, I I always say to people, he wasn't even the sort of type that I would ever go for. Like he wasn't particularly good looking. He certainly didn't have the sort of personality that I would normally be attracted to. And so I usually put that down to the fact of the state of mind that I was in at that time. It really wasn't looking really. I'd stopped observing because I think I was so scared of what observing all of the things that had gone around me that weren't true, that were coming back at me as if they were. And I think that I really, I was just running. I was running away from everything and everyone. And so he provided that space to run to. Yeah. And it's so common though. And I think it's a normal feeling when you're feeling like lost in this world and when you're feeling sad and depressed, it's a normal thing to want attention and to feel loved and to feel beautiful and to feel like you've got somebody there to support you. So it's not something that's crazy. You know, it's something Mm. that is normal and okay to feel. Um, And that's okay to have that there but that doesn't mean that anyone has any right to treat you other than the way that you deserve to be treated. So regardless of the motives on your end or your mental state in that space. Yeah. And it, look, it was interesting because it started out well. It started out well. I chose to have sex with this guy. You know, he gave me a choice. He knew that I was a virgin because I told him that and he gave me the choice and I felt like I was ready. I was 23 
yes, she is old. You know, like I, I was ready physically. I was probably past ready. Um, so, you know, it was just, it seemed like, well, okay, why not? Why not? Like I've, I'm falling for this guy. He seems really nice. Why not? This could be a wonderful relationship. Yeah. And I think the fact that I was a virgin at that age and I was extremely naive, I missed a lot of the red flags. I really did. I didn't know so much. And even when it came to sex itself, the sex was great initially, but very, very quickly it was grooming me. Well, you need to do this. And I would say, but I don't feel right doing that. I don't think I need or should do that. Well, this is the way it's done. And, of course, you wouldn't know that because you never had sex with anyone before. But I have, and I've had sex with all these people, and this is what you do. Mm. And I was like, well, I don't really want to. Well, you need to. You have to. This is what, you know, this is the way things are. And, yeah, that was sort of where the control started. And the sort of person that I was, you know, I was thinking intimacy whereas he was using it for control. And that was confusing. Absolutely. And, you know, you're so right with your naivety almost in a sense of you've never been in a sexual relationship before. So you are new to that and inexperienced in that. But you're putting up boundaries, you're putting up things and saying, I don't really want to do that. And it sounds like he's gaslighting you and monopolizing your perception of the world, which is two key cornerstones of coercive control. Um, And I think it's as well, you're saying, I don't want to, he's saying you have to and challenging why you should be doing things in a situation where you kind of know not to, but you must be questioning that if somebody with more experience is telling you that that's what your job is? Yes, because that was the message that was constantly told to me that you wouldn't know. Of course you don't know. This is the way it is. Like really you're quite dumb for not knowing. And it was that whole coercive control. It was that gaslighting. It was in a bubble as well because this all happened when I was living on the islands. And for anybody who has lived on these islands as a staff member, it is a whole different way of living and it is separated. You literally cannot get off that island. So you actually can't get away from these people. And so it's a culture. And that was what he was breeding me into. No, this is the culture. This is what's done. You have to do this or, you know, you just like, what are you? You know, so it was, wasn't was even just questioning what I did or didn't want to do or did or didn't understand. It was like, well, you're not human, <laughs> you know, essentially, if you're not doing this because this is just what's done. Yeah. And after time, I guess as well, it makes you, you believe that you're not, you know, you are questioning yourself, but somebody else has got more experience than me. I'm isolated from a lot of culture and you're right. And I think I've been to a lot of those type of areas. I've never really worked there, but I've been... I've been backpacking throughout the world and things like that in these different areas where you're doing the activities and stuff all of the time, right? It's kind of a party culture. So, you know, sleeping around or doing things a little bit dangerously is normalized. And the fact that your friends and everything are coming through and leaving so quickly, you also don't really have a solid family kind of there or friends to speak with all the time as well, because the turnover is so high. So, I would guess as well for you, who the fuck do you go to to speak to mm. about this? Yeah, that's right. Who do you? Well, there's certainly nobody on the islands. And some of the female friends that I did have, well, they were very um, much sleeping with guests as well as other staff. And so for them, they were like, oh, Vera, what are you doing? Like, of course you do. Of course, that's what you do. That's what everybody does. So I was actually getting those messages from my friends as well. And it wasn't until many years later when I actually went through domestic violence healing and and support groups, when I went through sexual assault counselling, that I started to understand just how warped the view and the culture of what I was taught was the norm, that it actually isn't the norm for most people. But because 
most of the people I was around, that was what their norm was. And I think too, the other thing is I had butted my head against this the whole way through my university degree. I did a physical education degree. So, you know, in, in the word that people use, they were most of the people there were jocks, you know, and most of them were guys and most of them were sleeping with everybody they possibly could, multiple people from our, you know, group at the same time. So again, the overwhelming messages that I was getting from everybody around me was, well, this is what you do. Like, really, they were looking at me like, what planet am I living on? Because I wasn't doing that. And so again, I got to the point, I was like, well, okay, I've, I've made this decision to start having sex with this guy. I think I'm falling in love with this guy because like I said, at the start, he was really romantic. He was really lovely. I mean, he was actually quite protective of me. There was another red flag that I didn't understand at the time. That whole overprotective thing uh, was actually more of a possession rather than a protection. Yeah. Um, but at the time, I was quite flattered by that. And so, yeah, it, it was a really interesting journey to be going through at the time. It was confusing to be looking back on it now. It's quite fascinating what human nature, when the intentions are not to lift somebody up can do to someone. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you just touched on there in your university and culture too is important to talk about because if, if you're consensually having sex with a number of different people, go for it. As long as you're being safe and you, you're doing that consensually, fine. You choosing not to is also your choice. And I think that we've, we mirror this very differently in society, especially with the sexual expectations of men and women. Men are supposed to be you know, jocks and they're supposed to be doing this. Women are supposed to be conservative in the amount of people that they sleep with, but also they get slut shamed and weirdly shamed for not doing them as well. But I think the point I'm trying to make is you can sleep with multiple partners and that is an okay thing to do. But when you turn around and you don't want to do that, the response from the people around you should be like, great, that's beautiful. That's your choice. You do with whatever you want. I've slept with a lot of people. If you'd like to ask me some questions, that's completely fine. You're still my friend. Like regardless of what what side of that your choice is on, it's a choice for both sides. And that really upsets me that either side of that gets judgment or gets mischaracterized and pushed down a a certain way. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the the big word there was consent, and this is what we're going to be talking about a little bit later in my stories. There wasn't consent for a lot of the stuff that went on, and that was where most of my trauma came from. I agree. You know, I I was one of those people who was like so many of my friends were sleeping around. I'm like, well, great. You know, how was it? You know, how do you feel? And is that relationship going? And, you know, all this wonderful stuff because, again, I was like, I'm supporting you because that's your choice. It was just interesting that I didn't get that back from most of them (laughs) coming the other way. Like you said, like I wasn't sleeping around. So somehow I was the weird one and I, you know, and so that I think played on me. And also the fact that I did have two relationships, they didn't become sexual, but I did have two relationships that I started during those four years that I was at university And for both of them, they left me for women that would sleep with them. And so, again, the message I was getting was, well, if you're not going to pay out, what you say you to me? Yeah. And so I think that when I was in that vulnerable state and I was secluded on that island and I was having everyone tell me, well, why aren't you doing this already? It just became, okay, I sort of give in, you know. Which isn't enthusiastic consent either. That's pressure and that's coercion mm. into something that you don't specifically want to do. And and I just hate that because I feel like sex should be something that you enter into with somebody nervously for the first time, but excited nonetheless, and with trepidation but and with caution, but with love and respect. And I think most people I've spoken to who have normal normal in inverted commas you know, first experiences, it's with somebody of a similar age to them. They're probably only had sex a few times themselves or if at all, and it's Mm. awkward, but it's hilarious Mm. to look back on and, you know, but they were comfortable with each other and they were laughing and giggling and it's a fun exchange of two people. Yeah. To get to a point though, where you feel beaten down is not consent. That's 
That's not, mm. that's assault. And that's you coming mm. to the conclusion of not fighting the system anymore rather than giving consent. Absolutely. And that, that was something that I had to work through later on, you know, when I realised after I'd left, only after I'd left him eventually, which we'll get to that shortly, and I started going through support groups and I started going through sexual counselling because that was very different to domestic violence counselling. The two often go together, but they do need different treatment for healing because there are so many complex issues with both of those things. And it really was, it really was me looking back and essentially seeing things from a reserver's point of view and trying to t- almost take myself out of it personally because there was so much hurt and so much pain. And yet I needed to remember a lot of the stuff that I'd forgotten, you know, yeah. um, because that's the other thing that can happen. There's a lot of stuff in there that your body says you're not ready to remember that yet and so that that process was quite long and arduous and took a lot of effort and some little aspects of it are still going now and that's okay because life is a journey full of experiences and that's one of my experiences it's also one of the reasons why I help so many people now because I understand there is light at the end of that tunnel there really is no matter how deep and how dark that tunnel is sometimes still still is or was um there is a way out there really yeah. is absolutely there is so much life after abuse i know we'll get to that soon um but i always yeah call it a roller coaster and i know it's commonly called a roller coaster but i do call it that because i think there are days when you're up and there are days that when you're down and healing is not a pinnacle that you get to and then nothing ever happens again. I think healing is a journey that you go through and it sounds like on the face of it, you know, healing is a journey. It's like affirmations or something. It's a bit <laughs> um, shallow in a way, yeah. but when yeah, you think about it in practice, <laughs> yeah, it's a big, it's a big buzzword. And I don't, you know, I think for me, it, it for me always comes back to working through things and now I can deal with adversity as it comes my way much better and much more competently and much more confidently. And it affects my mental state less and less because I have the tools in a toolkit that I've created and built over a long period of time to cope with things as they come my way. And that's how I would describe that. And it is overwhelming times. That's the bottom end of that, you know, roller coaster dip where you go under and it's dark and, but usually through the you know process of going to therapy and things like that, the amount of time that you spend down there is way less um, and way less dark than it is at those times before yeah. because you've, you're teaching yourself ways and strategies to work through things as well. That's exactly right. And that's where structure is really important in that process. And that's the importance of seeing professionals to go through that process, to have the right support for you because there will be some things that you're not going to want to do as in I don't want to remember that or I don't want to talk about that. And that might mean that, okay, right now that's still a little bit too raw to go into. Maybe it always will be and that's okay. Maybe later on you will be able to go into that and that's okay too. It's all okay because what you're doing is you're honouring what's happened to you. And you need to be honouring that around people who understand. And I think that that's one of the most important things. And also people who are not going to not going to come at you like it's your fault. And there are so many, so many opportunities, I think, for people to do that to victims. And that's, again, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about what I do now it's less about talking about blame for why things have happened in people's lives. It's less about talking about, well, you know, this really shitty thing happened to me and this person did this to me. And yes, I want to acknowledge that. And it's important to acknowledge that at the same time, it's important to acknowledge that because of things that happened, I've gone through this process. I've gone through this raw stripping back every layer of myself to really find out who I am and I probably would never have done that if I wasn't forced to have to do it 
And so yeah. there's actually been that opportunity for me to grow to just an amazing level of understanding myself. And, you know, I, I've actually got tingles going through me now because this is how much it means to me. I know that I wouldn't be the person I am today. I know I wouldn't be able to inspire, connect and empower so many other people without having gone through all of that effort and without having gone through all of that, I am worthy. I have learned that I'm worthy. I can look at myself in the mirror and say, I do love you, Vera Lee. This is who you are and I love who you are and I've always loved who you are. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Again, I wouldn't have understood the gravity of what that can mean and how that can help me to be stepping into my best version of myself every single day if I hadn't have had to go through this process. And I, I actually, I've written a lot of poetry because in my early stages, I couldn't speak verbally about what happened to a lot of the women in my support group so I wrote them in poetry and one of my poems is called thank you and there's a whole heap of things that I say I don't thank you for all of these things but then there's this stuff that I did thank him for because without that experience I wouldn't have been able to discover all this stuff about myself I wouldn't have been able to grow I wouldn't be the person I am today yeah and that was all through hard work of yourself And I think Mm -hmm. it's important that we acknowledge our post-traumatic growth and what we've done for ourselves. You fought that hard yourself. You've done all of that. And that's amazing. And um, to be able to say to yourself that you love yourself is something that we don't value enough in our society. And it really upsets me. I actually saw a video the other day and it was like, um, somebody asked the question, um, if you were to think about um, all of the things that you love most in the world, when would you, at what time would you say yourself and that made me think a lot about, you know, because my mind instantly went to my dog, my job, my family, my friends. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting, because I think yeah. it should be. And we're programmed to think, not think of ourselves. And yeah. who should be number one on that list of things that you love? It's you. Mm, yeah. And this is a journey you go through or I went through, I should say. This is a journey that I went through as a mother 
particularly as a mother going through divorce, leaving a domestic violence situation, going through all this healing support network, uh, going through my statements with the police for all the sexual assaults, like going through the family law court. There was, there was all this stuff going on and it was all about me and yet the focus was on me then trying to be a mother to my new child, you know, and, and a suddenly single mother. And so the world actually from my perspective wasn't about me. I was just doing whatever had to be done to try and get through it to be a better mum for my boy. And what I learned through that process was actually I need to take care of myself first because I can't take care of him the best way possible for what he needs if I don't because I break down, I burn out, I end up in hospital, which is exactly what happened. And it took yeah. me getting very, very ill to realise that. Yeah. And I think that's incredible acknowledgement as well. And um, I, I hear a lot of survivors saying this too. It's it's breaking that cycle. And to break that cycle, we need to stop perpetuating these, you know, things. And if, if it's something that you, you know, tr- just try and shield them from and you have those scars, you know, that you're working through as well there, you're not going to be the best mother you can possibly be because mm-hmm. you're not there. At least I'm not on the level that you could be. And that's the hardest yeah. thing as well, just to realize that putting yourself first isn't putting your child second. No, very good distinction there, Maddie. It's not. It's it's actually about honoring as much the importance of those people around you as yourself, because that that is what we're talking about here, to love yourself, to love one another as well. There's enough love to be equal for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Hugely. Yeah. So you met, um, if we go back to where you were, Mm. so you met this man on Mm. this holiday, you lost your virginity to him, you started to date him. Did you guys Mm. work together at the? Yeah. So we were working together at the resort and he very quickly needed to leave his job and go back to the mainland where his family was and basically pleaded and just harassed me until I left my job, which I actually loved that job and was really enjoying it, and harassed me until I left that to go and be with him. And the interesting thing was he proposed to me as a way of, again, controlling that part of the journey. So it was like, well, now, you know, we're engaged, you're my fiancé, so you have to come off the island and live with me. And, again, I didn't recognise that that was another way of him ostracising me, another way of him keeping me in his little bubble rather than with the bubble that I'd already started creating with my friends and and that sort of thing. So we did. We went and lived at his family's house and that wasn't great. And I basically became a lot more depressed again and I started seeing a doctor there. And they got enough of my story just to know that I was a long way from home. I had very good relationship and connection with my family and friends back down in Melbourne and that really that was where I needed to be, to be helped and supported through this severe depression. And so I did stand up to him and I said, I need to leave. I need to go back home. I need to be around my family. And he actually then came with me the thing was in hindsight that was my opportunity to leave him he had actually started exhibiting some behaviors as soon as we were off the island that were alarming to me he'd started punching the cars he forced forced me I'd hired a car at one point because he wanted to take me to some mountain somewhere and I'd hired a car under my name and we'd, I'd gone and driven to this mountain and all he wanted to do was to have sex in the open trail on this mountain. And I was like, I'm not doing that. There are people everywhere here. I'm not doing that. And it became this massive thing for him that we have to do. I'm like, I'm not doing this. Like I, I stood my ground and he was so furious about this whole thing that grabbed me by the hand, stormed me back down the mountain 
got in the car, wouldn't let me drive it, drove it like an absolute maniac. And I was so afraid that he was going to kill us. Like on these roads, I'm just like, you can't, you can't drive this quick. You can't, like he was skidding all over, like, oh, my God. I just, it was the most terrifying experience I'd ever had. And I honestly thought he was going to crash and kill both of us. And he would not listen to me and then returns the car back to the dealership. And I had to stand there with the guy saying, uh, we've got speeding fines. We have reports of people saying that there's this maniac driving this vehicle and it's the vehicle you've just returned to us. Was there anyone else driving the car? And I literally lied and because I was so terrified at this point, like I could barely hold it together. No, yeah. no, it was me. I'm sorry. I don't know what they're talking about. I actually don't know how I got out of that, but I did. I got the speeding fines and everything. But that, I think, was a test. That was a test to see if I was going to break and go or allow him to come down to Melbourne with me. And, again, because of the vulnerable state I was in and because of my naivety, I knew I felt terrified, but I didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. And so he did follow me. He did follow me down to Melbourne, and that's when it got really, really bad. I think it's like testing compliance as well. So push a boundary to a certain degree, pull back, push a boundary, see how much he can do to get you to comply and push the boundary further and further and further each time. And, you know, something that I've heard so much with so many hugely horrific domestic abuse cases is that moment in the car. And it's a moment where you have absolutely no control. Other people are in danger. You're screaming and it's a high adrenaline situation yeah and it just strikes me as something that I've heard in almost every single case that I've heard from people that I know and people whose cases I don't know and have heard them speak um and how terrifying that must be we know how lethal a car crash can be we know how lethal cars can be to be put in that situation must have been so terrifying um and also the behavior that precipitated that you know it Mm. Yeah, it was. It tells you and that the next time to stop that from happening, you comply correct. beforehand, which is sexual assault. And correct. that's, you know, where people come into it with domestic abuse and say, why didn't you just leave? Well, you've now had your life threatened mm-hmm. by not complying. That's basically what that was. And that's that's right. So scary. Yeah, very scary. And and it continued and it escalated and this is the other thing that happens, it escalates. So once they test what boundary you're going to comply to, then they will put up another one that is that little bit further and that stretches you and stretches you and stretches you until it gets to the point where now you don't even know how to say no anymore, essentially. It's like, well, i give you an example again in the car really to me it was stupid because I was like this is so fucking insignificant and yet it put me back into that same state of oh my god he's going to crash a car and kill us he would get to onto a highway um, because we lived in a very busy part of Melbourne which was with very busy freeways and highways and he would get on and he had this thing about McDonald's and I never ate shit before I met him like I was all this really healthy person and he used to only allow me to eat stuff like McDonald's and we'd get in the car and he'd be basically in a situation where he'd be speeding and then he'd say left or right like which lane do I take left or right I don't fucking know you're the one driving the car you know left or right tell me and he would literally nearly be crashing into the truck in front of us or the car in front of us and I had a left then you know like shit and then he would keep doing it and keep doing it and be going faster and leaving less room before he asked the question it was all this stupid to me stuff but I was absolutely terrified like was nearly wetting my pants with this behavior and then he'd drive into a McDonald's and you know, what are you going to eat? I don't want anything. What are you going to eat? I don't want any food. I don't like McDonald's. You have to eat something. What are you going to eat? Fine, get me, I don't know, they didn't have salads back then. Whatever the smallest burger was, fine, get it. And I'm thinking I'm not going to eat it, you know, I'll just leave it there. 
they forced me to eat it. Like, again, this is stupid stuff. We're still in the car. So I'm still shaking like, oh, my God, you know, he's nearly killing us. And then I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to do the same thing on the way home. Like, this was a daily thing. And then if somebody in another car would react, well, then it was full-on road rage, you know. (laughs) And I was just like, there was like no break from that side of it. And this is before we even get into what life was like at home. This is out in public. How did that feel for you to be operating at that level all the time? Like you're on all of the time. You're you're worried about your safety all of the time. You're thinking about every single move that you make and thing that you do around you. What was that like? Yeah, so I used to say to people it was like walking on eggshells, but I think that that makes it seem like it's not a big deal these days to me. It's like, well, eggshells, big deal. No, it was like it was like what I would assume is walking through a minefield where you have no idea where the mines are. There was just no rhyme or reason. There was no pattern to this behaviour. It was a constant, yes, this is going to happen, but exactly how is it going to happen today? What time and when is it going to happen? How many times is it going to happen? I was exhausted. I was mentally exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted because this is a person that's supposed to love and care and remember that protection of me. Well, he's supposed to be protecting me too. Well, that's no longer happening. He's actually endangering my life. And so it was very confusing. It was very exhausting and obviously, in hindsight, very controlling. But the controlling part of it was the last bit that I put together. And when you were talking a little bit before just in response to me saying about being a mother and caring for my son. The other thing too, I think, to understand is when you're a survivor through that level of day in, day out, hour in, hour out, second in, second out for some of the assaults that I went through, that those seconds felt like an eternity. Those minutes then, could you imagine, if the seconds felt like eternity, what the minutes felt like, and then the hours. To be going through that level of it, you get to a point where you're surviving. And the the thing with being a survivor, and I actually did a podcast about the whole victim-survivor and what those words mean, because the whole thing about being a survivor is when you're in it, being a survivor doesn't feel powerful at all because you are literally just trying to get through life without dying. without being killed, without killing yourself, without having this shitfulness happen. And sometimes you just want it all to stop. So, you know, it, it really is such a strange space to be in, to be just surviving. And unfortunately for me, when I left that space and for many people that I've spoken to and with since, Once you leave that space, that survival mode, it continues for a long time. And so it really does take a lot of work, a lot of support to get to that point where you're not in that survivor mode all the time anymore and that you actually can go, oh, now I can actually be, you know, and that's a huge thing. Yeah, I can exist. And I think what you're describing as well is is hypervigilance. And put this into context, say, if somebody has witnessed a crime or somebody has been involved in something really traumatic really quick, like if you've witnessed a car crash or something, time feels like it slows down because your body has a physiological reaction in that moment. So obviously your nervous system reacts, okay? You've got an increased heart rate you know, things, your blood stops flowing to your organs and it flows to your extremities because it's preparing you to flee. Um, You've got so many physiological things happening. And the reason that time feels like it's slowing down is because your eyes are now taking in every single millisecond around you and everything around you. They're not just focusing on that bit that's happened. You're aware at all costs of everything around you. Your brain is working at a level that it cannot sustain that is a defense mechanism for situations like that. So the physiological response that you're in in that survival mode of hypervigilance is hugely damaging and fucking exhausting to be 
taking in all of this information at all times. And I can't imagine what that would feel like when you're living with this person. Mm, Yes, because you don't really get the break and that's the thing. And part of the reason I got so ill in the years following me leaving this relationship was because I, I still was looking over my shoulder for a very, very long time, very long time, like 18 years long time. And the other thing is I was in adrenal fatigue because I'd been in that state, that hypervigilant state for so long without a break from it. And even after I left him, I still had to deal with the police with statements. I still had to deal with the possibility of going to court over all of this. I still had to deal with him finding us. I still, you know, there was just so many things going on. And on top of it, being a suddenly single mum, you know, it was like, for me, it was always like, that was like the last thing. It was the most important thing to me, but it was like the last thing I could deal with because I was trying to handle all this big ball of shit over here, you know? Yeah. And you're trying to like do, I don't know, jamboree and trying to be funny mum and clap along to different things and be there and be, you know, a present parent while you've literally got the weight of the world on your shoulders, physical, emotional threats at every level coming towards you and trying to smile in the face of that to be a good parent. Like, I mean, I can't. I can't sympathize enough with that because I've never experienced that. And to be honest, it's something that I obviously hope I never have to, but my heart just Mm. can't, I can't empathize enough because I can't imagine how awful that must feel. And I, the fact that anybody has to go through that is the reason that I do this as well, because I'm so sick of people asking, why didn't she just leave? You've got so many things that are going on concurrently, being frightened for your life, being frightened for your child's life, being frightened for so many different things and knowing that there will be repercussions for your actions. And I think that that's trying to be a good parent on top of that must just be fucking exhausting. Yep. Yep. It was. It was. And it was for a very long time. And again, it's a testament to human beings. It's a testament to women who are finding themselves in these situations. The One of the things too that I often say to people was I was a person that had to choose to leave that relationship and I recognise that enough to go, okay, this is never, ever going to change. It's escalating. I can logically see all of this. My whole emotional confusion and, you know, how is all of this happening and I still don't understand it and the the gaslighting thing was just massive because it got to the point where I was cut off from pretty much everybody that was ever important in my life and told that I was a lunatic I was the one who was crazy you know what just was said and and what I just saw and everything didn't actually really happen you know like it's just I'm a freaking nutcase and I need to be institutionalized and you know it was that whole thing Somewhere in there, Vera Lee was going, no, you know what you saw. You know what happened. You know what you're enduring every single time. He's the one that has the psychological issue, not you. You need to get out. And the longer you stay here, as much as you're afraid of the escalation I'm leaving, you're going to die. And your son's going to die if you stay here because that's how bad this is getting. This shit just is getting so unbearable on every level. And, again, when you put all the sexual assault, I mean, that that was the stuff that really broke me the most. And if I can, I'll tell you a little bit about one of those moments because when we were talking about me coming on this podcast and doing this episode with you I was talking about how I lost my voice and how I learned how to find it again and I think this particular incident is very pivotal to where I first felt that I got broken yeah and how I then was able to reclaim who I was from that point in time so basically my husband had been assaulting me for probably a good six months before this particular event. 
And so having sex forced upon me, having oral sex forced upon me, um, suffocating me while he was sitting on top of me to try and control me, all of those things had become normal. And again, that, that word is in quotes, normal, because I don't think that I actually ever knew what normal was. But that was what I was used to happening. That was what I knew was going to happen. And the more that I resisted against that, and I did, I still resisted against that all the time, those behaviours and other behaviours would be escalated until I couldn't resist anymore, even if it was simply physically, because this guy was huge too. And I actually wasn't that big at that point in time. And then he used to work split shifts. And so at that point in time, we actually weren't married yet. And I'd gotten a little bit of a reprieve because he was out at work. And I remember I was trying to clean the house because this was one of his ways that he would also control the people around us, that my family he knew were very uncomfortable around dirty surroundings. And he used to get so worked up and angry and stop me from cleaning. And so whenever he would leave, I was frantically trying to clean everything to try and get some sort of order to try and at least not feel so disgusted with the environment that I had to live in. And he came home from one of these shifts. And usually when he came home from one of those shifts, he used to sit on the couch for maybe half an hour, play his PlayStation, hurl abuse and whatever verbally at me. But I knew I had this little bit of a leeway before the sex was going to happen. Well, this particular day, he came straight in, stripped his clothes off, basically grabbed me and said, we're having sex. And I was like, no, like, I don't know. And he said, we're having sex now. No, no, I'm, I don't I don't feel like it. I don't want it. No. And he grabbed me and held me in front of the couch. And I hated that couch. My friends had told me it smelled like him. And I was horrified. I was like, that's because he sits on that freaking couch and he forces me to have sex on it. And he sits there in the nude on it, like always. And I hate it. And at least in the bed, I was like, at least some part of the bed was okay because at least like I got sleep there, you know, like I got some sort of reprieve. The couch was a whole nother thing. And he grabbed me and he bent me over on the couch and he started having sex with me. Again, this had happened many times before, but unfortunately he stopped for a moment and then he started penetrating me anally. And I screamed because the pain of that, and he was extremely forceful, and the pain of that literally felt like I was being split in two. And so I screamed and he jumped back and he said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. It just, it was an accident. I'm so sorry that shouldn't happen. It just, it just went the wrong part. And I was like shaking. I was in shock. I could barely move. And I thought, okay, he's going to stop. And then he bent me over and did it again and didn't stop. And he kept going. And I was in so much pain and so much shock. I couldn't do a thing. There was no sound coming out of my body anywhere. In my head, I was screaming, but there was no sound coming out anywhere. And when he had finished, I was bleeding. I somehow, he, we used to live in a two-bedroom, like two-level house. Somehow he got me up the stairs to sit me on the toilet. And I sat there and I cried for hours. I didn't know what to do. My first thoughts were, I'm going to get a fucking infection. Like, I'm bleeding. He's damaged me. I, like... I don't know what to do. I'm in so much pain. I'm numb. I'm in shock. Who can I tell? You know, like I can't tell anyone about this. Like I I just didn't know what to do. And what I explain to people is that that when, when he came back the second time and wouldn't stop and I knew two things, that was a realization that he was deliberately doing this. That was the biggest thing for me. 
the second thing for me in realising that he was doing this, this was going to keep happening. This was another escalation. And what the hell was I going to do now? Wow, thank you so much, Vera Lee, for providing such an in-depth and raw account of your experiences that you've had to endure at the hands of your perpetrator. For now, we're going to wrap up part one of this discussion and we'll be, be, we will be back next week with part two of our discussion with Vera Lee. Again, thank you so much. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.